everyone, and welcome to another exciting edition of Words, Images, and Worlds. So delighted on this episode to be talking with, may, may I say comics legend? Is that a possibility? Can I say legend? Does that work? Are, are you asking for my permission? Yes, yes. I, I, I leave it up to my uh, my audience, my, my followers, whoever, to decide whatever it is I am. I, I, don't, I don't make those Perfect. judgments. Perfect, perfect. Well, we'll go with comics creator, comics legend, Bob Budiansky. Bob, thank you for jumping in and thank you for joining me. Uh, I'm happy to be here, Jason. That's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for saying yes. I'll mention a couple of titles uh, that, I mean, uh, lots of things for Marvel, of course. Um, you have Transformers, which a lot of folks know you for. And I think I've heard at least two interviews with you that have gone into great depth with Transformers. You've also worked on Ghost Rider, Punisher, a variety of characters that folks would know. And I'd like to mention a character that you created, which is Sleepwalker, that we'll get to in a little bit by means of a question as well. Did I miss any highlights from the career that you want to make sure to? Well, to? Uh, okay. So I worked at Marvel for over for almost twenty years in different mm -hmm. capacities. So as a writer, an artist, and mostly as an editor. So as an editor, I edited you know, a lot of books that people are familiar with: Fantastic Four, Daredevil, Spider Man. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Also, I was a special special projects editor, so I was responsible for movie adaptations, the Marvel retail poster program. And probably most significantly in the early 90s, all the Marvel trading cards, the first 11 sets that Marvel came out with that they didn't license to somebody else to package together. We did it in-house, starting with Marvel Universe 1 in 1990. So I was responsible for overseeing all those sets for the first four or five years of that program. So I did a lot of things that uh, may not be so obvious to some of our uh, listeners. Oh, in addition awesome. to things you mentioned. Yes. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned those trading cards. That was for me uh, a gateway into getting know so many, getting to know so many characters. Um, just because I grew up in a small town, so I got books as I could. Uh, but those trading cards, it would be like, oh, who is this? What is this person like? And then you get to read more and and find out more. So very cool. It was the hope that it would be a gateway for a lot of a lot of younger folk to uh, you know get interested in the characters and say. You know, let's see what they let's see what they're like in a comic book story, and they pick up a comic book and um, if you use the word gateway. You left out the word drug. It's the gateway drug into comic books of its time. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That that was my first introduction to, might have been um, the Submariner, <clears throat> but also Moon Knight as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so curious <clears throat> for you. What um, what comics, let me make sure I get this question right, what makes comics this unique and sort of special way of storytelling and creating, in your view? I think uh, if done correctly, uh, comic books combine words and image to make an immediate impact on the reader. And that's mm -hmm. an emotional, visceral uh, connection. If it's done correctly, a lot of comics aren't done correctly. One thing I always used to mention in uh, art that I used to occasionally teach comic book illustration art classes. Mm -hmm. um, and I would make the comparison. You know, comic books are very similar to movies in that you're going from scene to scene. Characters are moving, they're talking, they're, there's action, there's emotion. Um, it's visual, it's words. The difference is, the big difference besides the budget, is um, in movies you have 24 frames a second to show something. 
Mm-hmm. So a, a particular action or emotion or whatever, it could stretch over a few seconds and you have 24 frames a second to, to um, show that progression of that particular action, let's say. In comic books, you don't have that luxury. You, you can't show a particular action in 24 panels. You would use up you know, half the book that way. So you don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. So the best artists, best comic book illustrators are able to pick out that one frame in that 24 per second sequence the one frame that has the most impact that tells the most information about what it is that the writer as well as the illustrator are trying to get across mm-hmm. and so if you can find that particular artist and combine it with a writer who knows how to write a good story you have a, a really excellent comic book and that really makes that kind of connection that i referred to earlier with the reader and um and I was lucky enough not only to grow up reading comic books uh, that were uh, created by some of these artists and writers who had that, who had that talent, uh, but I was able to work with a lot of them myself. And I learned an awful lot from them and tried to incorporate that into my, my own artwork, my own approach to drawing comic books. Yeah. yeah. I, I want to ask about some of those folks that were kind along the way. But you also mentioned that comics were a big part of your reading life and specifically your reading development. Did you want to mention anything about that since? Uh... Well, I started reading comics, you know, very young. Um, I, I had two older brothers, so they had they had comic books around our apartment. And I started picking up theirs. And then maybe by the time I was like around seven years old, I was able to take my allowance and start buying my own comic books. Mm-hmm. And, um, and one thing I realized very early on was that was that the writers, at least the writers of the stories that I was reading, many of the, many of the stories, not all of them, but many of them, they used a lot of words I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And it would make, you know, and it wouldn't frustrate me. It would make me want to know what does that word mean? And I think it really helped increase my literacy just by reading those comic books. And writers like Gardner Fox and John Broom, and, uh, and then a little bit later, Stan Lee, uh, just you know, added to my vocabulary just by the stories of names that I read. Love that, love that. Yeah, that that speaks a lot to what my work has been about and this podcast has been about. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, mm-hmm. So, so now to sort of go back to that question of folks that have been particularly kind, and the other side of that is, as an editor, I know you you've had a hand in developing talent along the way. So any particular creators, folks out there that you're especially proud of their journey and, and proud of where they've gone to? Um, well, I I decided to hire David Kelly to draw Daredevil. And David Kelly then went on to draw Daredevil with Frank Miller writing it, and the combination produced uh, the Born Again storyline, which is, I think, pretty much considered by people who follow comics a classic uh almost legendary storyline, especially about Daredevil, like really stood apart from uh, anything that was coming out at the time and it still holds up really well. And uh, that storyline was recently used in the Netflix Daredevil TV show as a basis for an entire season and so on. So I gave Mazza Kelly his, his first shot at for regular monthly comic. Uh, well, he might've been doing Star Wars, I think before that, but you know, he wasn't known for that, but he became known for Daredevil. He stands out. I don't know. I've, Apparently, like Fabian Nicieza, who's a well-known comic book writer, claims that I gave him his first regular writing assignment at Marvel. Mm-hmm. If he says so, okay. So, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, he turned into a terrific writer, and uh, so you know, a lot of times uh, as an 
on so many different projects that I would hand things to people and give them a shot at something. And I wouldn't remember that maybe I was the first one to give them that, that kind of a break. Uh, I was recently at a Marvel a function, a, a memorial, um, a memorial celebration for a, a John Ramita, John Ramita Sr. who passed away earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Jack Morelli, who was a longtime Marvel production person and letterer, and he still letters, uh, he reminded me of something I'd completely forgotten about, that when I was doing the trading cards, um, I gave him a shot at writing, and he wasn't known as a, he was not a writer. He was not known as a writer. He was a letterer and production person. Um, I gave him a shot at writing some of the early trading cards, and he said, uh, "What really?" You know, I had no memory of this, but he said, "What really um, impressed him was that, um, or made a, made a, made an impression upon him, I should say, is that um, apparently I told him uh, that his style of writing really worked. I was pretty, I was pretty." Um, brutal on some of these up-and-coming writers who I gave shots to. Not that they would like fire them outright. I would just say, I got to rewrite all this stuff. It's, that's not, it's not working. It doesn't have that snap, that snap that I'm looking for in the in the style. But apparently not only did they give him a not, not only did they give him a, a, an opportunity, but I gave him a compliment at the same time. <laughs> you know, he remembered that I have no memory of it until he mentioned it to me a couple of weeks ago at the celebration. So uh, those things happen. Oh, and then a few years ago, um I was at a convention and I met for the first, I thought I met for the first time, this artist named David Finch, who's mostly known, I hope I got the name right, who's mostly known for his work on Batman. He's a superb, superb artist. And he told me that back in my day, back in the 90s, when he was trying to break into comics and show his portfolio around, um, I, I would just introduce, he came over to me, I think, to introduce himself to yeah, when I was trying to break in, I came at, I came up to Marvel and I was trying to show my portfolio. And I, I got the impression of thinking that nobody really was looking at his portfolio. Mm-hmm. They were too busy or something. He was up there with his mother. He was still in high school, I think. And and I happened to bump into him in the elevator on the way down or something. And I guess we got to talking and he said, I talked to him and I looked at his portfolio and I gave him some constructive comments that really encouraged him. <laughs> and look what happened. <laughs> and I had no memory of that. Like we just a guy in an elevator who, you know, I never remembered after that. But wow. look what, you know, he became a far superior artist than I ever became. You know, so I'm happy I was able to, you know, help him uh, a little bit on his uh, journey there. You know, so you never know like what what couple of comments uh, in, in a position like I had at Marvel can really affect somebody and really give them a break and give them an opportunity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's amazing sometimes how uh you you might say something in an offhand way or something just in a moment and it's somebody else's like moment of shining and moment of movement forward and it, it was a tuesday <laughs> well yeah yeah it was just like you know, so I, I, I'll, I'll 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 give you a little more context on all of this so when i first came up to marvel i had a friend who was working there i was still in college and he my friend knew i wanted to you know i had an interest in becoming a comic book artist i was on the college newspaper as an artist i wasn't an art major but uh, my, my friend had been on the college newspaper and then he graduated, got a job. And then I came down to visit over one of the holiday weekends or something to bring your portfolio. So I brought my portfolio. He said, um, I'll show it to the art director, the art director at the time. One of the art directors was Marie Severin, a legendary artist. And um, so I said, fine, let me, you know, I'll show it to him. So he introduced me to Marie and Marie looked at my portfolio and she said very nicely to find, I should find another career. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then uh, about five or six months later, my friend calls me up and he says, 
I'm quitting my job. Would you like to interview for it? And I said, sure. He was an editorial assistant for the Marvel British department at the time. And that was basically a reprint department. We, uh, Marvel British department reprinted American comic books for the English marketplace. And then we sent over the, the film or whatever, and they would reprint it. Um, so anyway, I interviewed over the phone for the job. Uh, I, I got the job. I, I dropped out of graduate school to take the job. My first boss is Larry Lieber, Stan's brother. And, uh, and oh, my friend told me, don't tell Larry in the interview that you want to be an artist, but then he won't, he won't hire you. But if he, if you tell him that he knows, he'll know that you'll want to quit. Okay. So, um, so I didn't say anything about me wanting to be an artist, but I, anyway, got the job, came down, made it very clear soon. Uh, there were opportunities in the British books to do uh, one page fill in splash pages. I won't get into the details of why, but because of the perk, the, the, the quirks of the British, uh, marketplace and the weekly system instead of the monthly system that we had here mm -hmm. books would require extra splash pages uh frequently so anyway it's a good breeding ground for um for new talent um or training ground for breeding. um any case i made it clear i wanted to be an artist and i started drawing i started doing some some sketches for other artists to draw and i started doing some some of the splash pages myself but all that time our art director who supervised our area of marvel was marie severin <laughs> and I'm sure, just like I don't remember that incident in the elevator with Mr. Finch, uh, I'm sure she had no memory of just another wannabe passing by her desk, you know, six months earlier, showing his, you know, lousy portfolio and her kind of blowing him, her kind of blowing that person off. Anyway, once I got in Marvel and I started working uh, in the British Department and Marie started uh, overseeing some of the work I was doing, she could not have been a more generous, better teacher than she was the best teacher I ever had. She was great. So I just want to keep that, you know, put that in the context of uh, the bigger picture, which is you never know what a comment can mean to somebody and you should never take no as an answer. Of course, originally she said no. But, you know, one little comment, I could have just said, okay, forget that. But, um, but it, it made me very sensitive to anything I would say from then, from then on. And as, as I became more established at Marvel and, and met more uh, people who wanted to break in, I would never say to them, find another career. I would I would be honest with them and say, well, if you want to be an artist, you have a lot of work to do and here's what you need to work on and so on. But mm -hmm. uh, you're very sensitive to not crushing anybody's dreams uh, <laughs> too, too uh, brusquely like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, after that interaction with Marie Severin, were there other folks along the way that were sort of guideposts for you as you were working? Oh, yeah, yeah. So... Uh, I, I got to work with John Romita, who was the other art director. So John Romita was always great to work with, and, you know, pointing out this and that. And he would take whatever I would show him, whether it was my sketch or somebody else's sketch, and then he would put a, a tracing paper overlay on top and show you how it should look. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I learned a lot from John. And uh, uh, Larry Lieber, gave, like I said, I wasn't hired to be an artist, but he gave me opportunities. On staff as a full editor. Um, I, uh, Jim Shooter, who was editor in chief at that time, gave me lots of opportunities. Transformers being the uh, perhaps uh, the primary example of the opportunity to do something I really hadn't been doing before, and gave me a shot at it. Um, <laughs> and other people, you know, like uh, I worked with a lot of really wonderful people. But but um, as an editor, I mean, other than my my immediate bosses, I was pretty much left to my own devices. So I wasn't. Uh, uh, it wasn't wasn't so much mentoring. It was just like just okay, you're responsible for this. Do your job. And I did my job, and 
my bosses, whether it was first, it was, um, my, I came back as an assistant editor for Jim Salakrup and uh, the mainstream books. And Jim and I got along great, still friends. Um, then I left staff again to draw Ghost Rider. Then I came back as a full editor. Jim Shooter was my boss, got along very well, gave me opportunities. Um, then Tom DeFalco replaced him as editor in chief, got along really well. You know, it's like, so I had some mentoring, but I also showed that I knew my stuff. And as the years went on, I was pretty much fairly autonomous. Like Tom DeFalco, I remember every every holiday, every Christmas holiday season, he would give out presents to uh, various you know editors on his staff. And he was always, I'd come into his office, would be coming one at a time, he'd give me something. Um, he'd always say, Bob, I like you because I never have to talk to you about anything. You know, like, you, <laughs> like, <laughs> like you, you just do your job and you get it done and, you know, like makes it makes his life easier for doing my job properly. So I think that was his attitude. So I was always, always very, very uh, encouraging to hear that sort of a comment. Not like he wanted to ignore me, but that he didn't need to you know, hover over me and uh, correct anything generally. He was always uh, very happy to let, my, let me do my thing. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, uh, supportive collaboration. Yes, yes, we were a good team, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so curious as we talk about some of the work that you have done and, and a wide range of work, uh, the Sleepwalker character in particular, and I believe it's 33 issues that you... Yeah, um, I think it's 33 issues, yes. Yeah. Um, curious about kind of the inspiration for that character and uh, a little bit of about what you would share. You, you mentioned the film connection earlier with talking about the frames per second. And I, I couldn't help but make the connection to a film student being a prominent part of that storyline and uh, oh. certainly <laughs> like a great psychological study as well. So curious well, about um, that particular part of your, your career. Well, just, just to you know, digress a moment. So I, I don't know if I picked a film student just because of the frames per second. It was just like, I wanted to give, I wanted him to be a college, I wanted Rick, his uh, human host, to uh, be a college student. And I was just trying to think of something that's a little more colorful than being, uh, no offense to accountants, but like to being in, in accounting or, or an English major or something. So uh, giving him a film student uh, background allowed him to you know, be out and about and do crazy, colorful things that maybe the average, the average student wouldn't get involved with. So that was my impetus for that. But, um, but as far as Sleepwalker goes, so that idea probably began um, around 1985, I'm thinking. So Jim Shooter, as editor-in-chief, would have weekly editorial meetings with all Marvel editors. And he would talk about different subjects. And one day, he talked about um, Superman, in which he started writing Superboy and Legion of Superheroes when he was like 13 years old, as you might know. Um, so he had a lot of experience with the character. And he said, in the real world, if Superman existed, in the real world, nations would not welcome him as a hero. They would look at him as a threat, mm -hmm. and they would do everything necessary to defend against the potential threat that he represented. And actually, the first uh, Henry Cavill Superman movie had a plot similar to that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that was decades later, back in the 80s, Superman was still this revered, you know, hero-like figure to most people, you know, so they weren't, they weren't afraid of him. Um, but anyway, that got me thinking, um, you know, one thing about Superman, which is sort of a contrivance, is that I think he's welcomed, especially by our country, because he, he was he was created to look like the 
stereotypical all-American, you know, guy from the mm-hmm. 1930s. You know, like he's handsome, he's white, he's strong, he's good-natured, he has all the right values. You know, truth, justice, and the American way is all instilled in him. So I was thinking, well, what if an alien came from another planet who didn't look like that? Mm-hmm. You know, who mean who means well, but looks like a green bug-eyed monster. Mm-hmm. And that was the initial um, trigger for me coming up with Sleepwalker to come up with a hero who defied that stereotype. And how would how would that work in this in this world of ours? So, um, and then I had I, I had an interest in um, dreams. I, I actually took a class in dream analysis in the late eighties, and uh-huh. uh, so I just I just com- combined my interest in dreams with this idea of coming up with the anti Superman, mm-hmm. and and so Sleepwalker was born. I wrote a treatment. Uh, we had a new project committee at the time at Marvel. I was actually the head of it, but I had to recuse myself because it was my project. So mm-hmm. the other committee members and we were pretty we were pretty harsh. We we rarely accepted all the different submissions that were coming our way. We found fault in almost everything. But that, that submission, actually, again, I wasn't I was refusing myself. I wasn't twisting any arms. Um, it, it passed muster. It got up to Tom DeFalco, who was editor-in-chief at the time. He asked for a couple of changes. So one or two drafts later, I turned it in, and it was approved. And mm-hmm. the comic came out. So that was, you know, maybe that was my greatest achievement while I was at Marvel, because I was actually able to create a brand-new character and, and get Marvel to agree to publish it. So it wasn't a long running hit, but it made its impact. And I got to, you know, say I created a sleepwalker and Hasbro made a toy of it last year. So yes. what more could you want? Absolutely. <laughs> well, I want a movie, but that's not there yet. Maybe, maybe someday. <laughs> Probably so. Probably so. Um, I would imagine so. A, a Disney plus series or a movie or, or something. Something. At yeah. some point. We'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. 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 Well, that, that is no small feat. Um, creating a character that enters the Marvel universe and has that uh, memory tied to it and that kind of interesting character development. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. One of the things that I appreciate about that character is there's kind of that like otherworldly supernatural aspect, but then it also totally works to have him fighting and working alongside someone like Spider-Man who's in, you know, the, the grounded sort of universe. So that, that was just another appreciation that I was going to, to put there. Well, I want to make it clear to readers, uh, either in the Marvel universe, but it wasn't just Spider-Man. He had Deathlock, Ghost Rider, <laughs> other characters pop up throughout the series. Um, and, and also, you know, it's a way to introduce the character to some readers who might not otherwise, who may not otherwise pick up the book. If they say they see that, oh, Spider-Man's in this issue, let me buy that, or you know, Ghost Rider's in that issue, let me buy that. So, you know, it's a very tried and true way of trying to uh, bring new readers to a, a brand new book that they may, may otherwise uh, pass on. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I had fun you know, introducing a lot of uh, guest stars into the book and finding ways for Sleepwalker to interact with them. And you know, you mentioned otherworldly. That's one of the things that really appealed to me about writing Sleepwalker about bringing bringing this um, otherworldly character, other dimensional character, like who, who's you know whose experience um, as, as a living creature is very different than ours. Bringing him into our world and him trying to understand what it is to live in our world. You know, whether it's you know just there's one one issue where I just had him walking Rick's dog, <laughs> you know, and trying to deal with a dog. 
and the other issues where you know you're fighting some supervillains. But you know, I try to give him a range of uh, of uh, scenarios where he can react, and and uh, and you know, we, the reader can see through his eyes what it's like to be part of a world that you're really not, you really don't belong in, but you have to somehow navigate your way through and try to understand it. Uh, I kind of did the same thing when I wrote the Transformers. That was my my main interest in writing the Transformers. I didn't do it every issue, but was trying to put the Transformers in very human situations and let and let's see what would happen if if they're if they're on a camp if they interact with people on a camping trip or if they're interacting with people um, on a tropical island or if they're interacting with people uh, on a used car lot. You know, like there's so many places that seem very um ordinary to you and i but that would be very alien obviously to these guys from another planet so um i had fun with that you know basically the whole fish out of water scenario i'm trying to play with that as much as possible yeah yeah and I, i've said before on episodes on here I, I love that aspect of science fiction that you get to kind of step back experience reality and then you kind of go to it and you go oh well i guess that is true oh i guess that is something we do every day so uh great literary device and method there to use as well okay well i i didn't invent that idea but i tried to <laughs> take advantage of it when i was writing books yes yep. i'm so curious about where your creative journey is sort of leading now as you're working well, and thinking i'm not that creative these days i do i have a day job and um i do an occasional art commission i go to conventions as a guest here and there um so i don't i'm not actively trying to pitch a project or create anything right now things do come to me aside from the occasional art commission so like two years ago i got contacted um by an editor at abrams publishing um uh, <laughs> The editor was steered my way by um, Marvel licensing VP. At the time, um, Abrams, Abrams, was, Abrams was interested, uh, at least his editor was interested in putting out a book about the Jim Lee set of Marvel X-Men trading cards from 1992, which is like a classic set. Mm -hmm. I happened to be responsible for that set as far as asking Jim Lee to do the set, overseeing the whole creative aspect of the set. So I had a lot to do with it. <clears throat> so... He wanted me to write the book. So the, the book is basically a reprint book of uh, all the cards, but there's a big section of an intro, what they call an introduction, but it went on for like 8,000 words. So it's almost like a little novella. But uh, he asked, the editor asked me if I would be interested in writing it. And I said, sure, you know, that sounds like a lot of fun. So I interviewed a whole bunch of people who worked on the set and, uh, and here it is. The book came out last year. All right. Love that. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that was like an unexpected, um, request to do something that you know took me out of my usual humdrum day-to-day -day routine and i was happy to do it and things like that pop up on occasion um but i don't go actively seeking them i don't pitch i don't pitch book projects to the editor to uh editors to publishers or anything like that um so i don't know where the next so in answer to your question long, long story short like you asked me what's my next step in my creative journey mm -hmm. i don't know <laughs> depends what might come my way but i'm not actively pushing much of anything these days it sounds like you are open to invitation, though. Yeah, if it's something that I think would be of interest to me. Like, uh, I just was at a convention in New Jersey this past weekend, and a former Marvel colleague of mine came up to me and said, Bob, I, I want to talk to you about, and he had, like, these different business uh, uh, proposals or, like, pitches. Pitches is the wrong word. He has, 
he's involved with different properties that I was involved with years ago at Marvel, but they're licensed properties. So he wants to talk to me about potentially getting me up my involvement on all these properties that I worked with, that I worked on over 30 years ago. So um, I said, sure, I'd be happy to talk to you. So that might turn into something. I don't know. But uh, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. People come to me and they ask me to do this or do that. And sometimes I say yes. And sometimes I'm not interested. Yeah. 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 Well, you, you have that uh, prerogative now with the career that you've built of uh, getting to be choosy. By all yeah, no, I know that's true. And I, I, I do have a day job and I do some work uh, on some of these commissions occasionally. Mm-hmm. It seems to be backing up on me. I don't you know, people ask and I don't get to them, but, but I don't have to like be working 24 seven to, you know, enjoy my life. I, in fact, I prefer not to, so I can have time to do other things. Um, so I'm not looking to fill up every, every minute with work, even if it's work I might like, and it's like there's other things I like to do too. So, um, see what comes my way. Yeah. Yeah. I probably need to to take that advice to heart as well. Um, anything else that you want to make sure to share before we close out? Um, no, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I don't have anything like very often when I'm interviewed, uh, not, you know, for different podcasts or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, people kind of figure I have, uh, I have something to pitch. <laughs> like, what, what are you, so what's coming up? What, what are you going to say? Uh, nothing's coming up, you know, but I will say um, if people want to contact me, uh, it's very easy to very easy to find me on Facebook. So a lot of people have contacted me on Facebook, you know, to get to get on my commissions list. I mean, you know, that's kind of why they want, that's why they usually want to contact me to do a drawing. So that sort of thing. Or if somebody has a brilliant idea that they think I would want to be involved with, uh, there's always that opportunity too. Um, you know, again, like you can easily find me on Facebook. There is nobody else with the name Bob Adiansky on Facebook, I can assure you, unless they attack me. Um, I, I enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully you did as well. Yeah, it was great. 